self-portrait in American black for the silent. I am that I am what America TVs me. Monstrous chameleon, schizophrenic Janice, transformed, transmuted, switching black image for your mind's white eye. I, I line up the game winner. Shoot it. I stand, arms raised. I am on the corner. Don't shoot. I stand, arms raised. The crowd gives a standing ovation. I stand, mic in hand, arms raised. I am a god. Now hurry up with my damn massage. The crowd sings along. I am unseen. I am conjured. I am that I am the entertainment you seek when you need to dance, to sport, to laugh, to cry, to feel like God. I am that I am what America's narrative makes me. A struggle ensues, a brief altercation, and I stand as death's bride. Arms raised, arms wide, black Plato for your mind's white eye, eye. Hello, every loving one of you. This is Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday. I know I did. That was poet Roberto Carlos Garcia reading Self-Portrait in American Black. Welcome back to the show. This is part two of our interview with Roberto, where we discuss his collection of poetry, Melancolia. Enjoy. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back to a domestic poem because you know some of these poems sort of they 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 move around from like yeah. confessional to domesticity. To, so I want to go to page twenty nine now. Okay. At dinner, maybe the woman I drew in blue crayon. The children and I shared a green and a blue one, doodled on the tablecloth. We chattered, ate bread, waited for entrees celebrated Graham's birthday. A couple next to us tried discreetly to study my blue woman, passed along their awkwardness. The woman, sad, stared into each face at our table. The man, silent, as if to say, don't be so obvious. She made me uncomfortable. When our food arrived, she watched us devour it. After, the busboy took our dishes. I studied the sad woman, the indifferent man. He rose went to the bathroom without excusing himself. She didn't notice, drank wine instead of noticing. And I thought I saw her memories and tragedies, their emptiness on the legs of the wine, and even after, when we were leaving, my wife's uncle asked me if I'd noticed her pale-skinned Eastern European features, her elegance. I remarked how she appeared sullen. He replied he hadn't noticed that. I like this line, she made me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. That um, that was one of those poems you get from real life. Mm-hmm. So, um, this, so this is an actual scenario? This is an actual scenario with some, some what's the word, embellishments, right? <laughs> right. But, poetic, uh, poetic license. Poetic license. <laughs> but yeah, um, it just 
more than anything, it had me thinking of how we occupy space together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what it means to go out to dinner. Is that, does that have to be a good thing? Or is it just kind of one more step on the road to some kind of oblivion for some people, while for others, it's just part of another thing you celebrate during the year? For us, it was obviously a special occasion, my mother-in-law's birthday and on and on. But for the people around us, um, watching that kind of joy, what do they experience? And it was very, I like, I'm a, I'm a real believer that humans are, we're, we, when we're looking for something or we want something, we make a, some kind of connection, whether it be across a dinner table, uh, across a couple of bar stools, on a train. Um, there is a kind of psychic or spiritual reaching out. Mm-hmm. And I believe like in that moment, I felt that woman kind of reach out to our, to our family, um, maybe to me, I don't know. Um, but there was a kind of reaching out um, that really kept, you know, the darting eyes back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. The darting eyes, the just kind of wanting to, it's hard to sit there when someone just wants to look at and appreciate what your group is doing, because you're always wondering, okay, why are you looking at us, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's an intrusion, right? There's an, it is. an intrusion into, I mean, you take your family from their haven which is the home and you put them in the public space and you're still doing something that is private which is sharing a meal but yet right. now you're surrounded and you basically have these eyes intruding on you or it is and yes but I, it, it's definitely that it's definitely an intrusion but then once you feel like that when you feel that reaching out and and I'm a very spiritual person in that sense like you know I do believe in in that type of stuff um, it's almost like you're, are you required to reach back? Are you, do you owe that, that person's melancholia something? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, for me, it was this poem, you know, I felt like I, I kind of owed her that, that poem, you know, I owed her that moment, uh, I don't know, to be explored and sat with, it, you know, that's a term I hear a lot, sat with, you know, and I, I don't know, that's, yeah, yeah. It's still a kind of haunting type of thing, you know? Yeah. So I want to go to a, a Lorca type of poem that you wrote in here on blood cake. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, blood cake. Poems with no lilies or moons and no love affairs about to fail. Federico Garcia Lorca. The earth is a blood cake. Blood bubbling in the soil, in the sea, dripping from the skies. Blood stretching in the wheat, the corn, blood crackling in the rice fields. The colors on my palette, red, yellow, black, brown, white. Herein is the world. And yet blood means a man, a woman, a child. No crust, magma, or core. Only blood crying out from the subconscious of every living thing. Mother Earth will come calling. In the lakes, rivers, and oceans of blood, in the fields, hills, and mountains of blood, each rose, sunrise, and sunset. Blood limp in a champagne glass. A toast to the tin taste of blood in the cake. That's your Raphael poem, by the way. Yes, that's my... You have to really go on that stage and be as flamboyant as possible. It's, um... You know, there's a couple poems in here that you know, 
that I just really said, fuck it. I'm putting these poems in here because mm. there's a certain thing that poetry is not allowed to do, and that's to really tell it ugly. Mm. Um, you know, I think everyone wants this certain craft and subtlety, and sometimes you need a baseball bat over the head. Sometimes you need that, or sometimes you just need ugly. And, there's a, you know, there's another poem in there where I, I think it's called I Cannot Write Anything. And this, those two poems are kind of close to each other in that sense that it was, um, there's a real frustration with that, with, um, with uh, the kind of poem that's not allowed to make it plain, so to speak, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, now, I, I think obviously you don't want 60, 70 pages of that, or maybe you do, you know? And if you do, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But um, I think this poem and maybe a couple other poems in the book are, fuck it. This is how I feel about it. And this is the reality of it, you know. Uh, on every single corner of this earth, we have shed each other's blood in awful and horrific ways. And that just, I don't think it just goes away. We think it goes away with the passing of time. But I think melancholia doesn't let us forget that or those things. Um I think it's one aspect of melancholy and on a very long list. You feel like we're tethered to the pain that, that we can only move so oh, far out of it, and absolutely, yeah. and and we could be tethered to it and be willfully ignoring it, and it's consuming our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of the way we view history, not just in the world, but even in America. We want to view it with rose-colored glasses, as opposed to looking at the bloodshed and carnage that it actually was and so some people are being consumed daily because they don't want to know about it while others are still kind of tethered to it every single day because it's their reality right so yeah that's that's where that poem and probably like one or two more probably the very next poem the apocalypse up close it's where the book gets dark you know <laughs> well that that poem i'm not going to make you read it because it's long but it it is a biblical poem right mm. i mean there's there's almost like um yeah i'm not not psalms what's scripture revelations yeah but what is that called that form whatever uh, that form is oh um is it ecclesiastical? No, right? It's uh, it's one of those Bible. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm so far removed from my Sunday school training. That, <laughs> <Me too. yeah. laughs> but you I know. know there is a name for it. It's just like it's just a certain form. That's the Bible. There's sections of the Bible where it happens. I think Song of Solomon it happens. Yeah. Um and it's really beautiful, but very hard to um, recreate. But this is this is a good uh, recreate. Like it, it's close to it. The, the next poem, which is the apocalypse up close, which people yeah. will have to buy the book to get. Yes, buy it, buy it. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's the, I think, you know, part of melancholy is that spiritual side and, you know, and again, that wrestling with that idea of a higher power and of wondering what that higher power wants from us, you know, and how we just, you know, along the way as we're trying to figure all this stuff out, we, you know, we fuck up royally. And so we, you know, Revelations gives us this, what does it give us? This amazing catastrophic ending, right? Mm. And we would think it it happens out of thin air, you know? And one day the horns blow and it's over. No, like we are, we are working ourselves up to this <laughs> in a sense. Um, 
And it's really the little things that lead to the big things. And I think that's something I was kind of obsessed with as I was trying to write this poem. How these very little things that we let pile up and kind of drag us into these little apocalypses, what they look like, you know, up close. Yeah. It's funny talking about um, the Bible. Uh, Revelation is like my least favorite part of the Bible, by the way. I'm, I'm more of a Say, revelations what is, is? is the least my least yeah. favorite part of the Bible. <laughs> not just because you know it's basically <laughs> it's a downer yeah it's such a downer <laughs> but, but just even the way it's written and and all that um but my favorite part is the gospel according to John because okay. it's you know the gospel is basically the story of Jesus retold by different people right so you got Matthew and etc and John's version of events is first of all it's it's almost like an abbrevi like a I don't know what do you call it not not an abbreviation but you know an abridged version of what happened but mm-hmm. he somehow makes Jesus into this badass rebel like this badass like I'm I'm gonna change all this crap I don't care what you people think <laughs> and and yes. you know it, it's a very um it's a revolutionary take on jesus's actions it's almost like a socialist document in a sense i mean it's it's brilliant i think and i think everybody should read it (laughs) well it's uh sassy jesus you know sassy jesus but it's it's also you know very angry jesus um you know that he's just fed up with things and wants to just wipe it clean and of course that's extremely radical um when you're talking about a religious tradition like judaism um but anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, uh, another wonderful poet who reviewed my book, you know, mm. in the process and was talking to me and was like, I hate religion, <laughs> but your book is making me face God. Like, why are you doing this? You know? <laughs> um, uh, you know, she's a, a wonderful poet in her own right, but it really got me thinking. I didn't realize how... You know, God is a presence in the book for sure, yeah. uh, and I didn't, uh, I didn't necessarily realize that right away. It's interesting what you realize later on as people ask you about it. Um, yeah. But that's because you know I, I try to, you know, I, you know I try to have God as a presence in my life some somehow. I I'm all, I'm looking for, I've been looking for that right way, and uh, what I find at every turn is that it's always us. It's always human beings. You know. And I think that we have this side of ourselves, this good and then this evil. And there's just maybe there's some of that in the book. I don't know. But, you know, it's always us fucking yeah. it up. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That's what but I even, want to say. Even if you, if you, if you feel that there's a, a God presence or higher power presence in the book, I, you know, that can mean so many things, right? I mean, yeah. in, 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 in so many ways, spirituality, um, it's a meta. It's so metaphoric. It's so metaphor rich, um, mm. because you can, you know, just simply change the scenario and, and forget the religion and be talking about this idea of longing, of desire, of um, human struggle. Also, very large, higher power type themes. I think. Yes, hundred percent. Right, right up there because it's part of who makes us what we. It's part of what makes us who we are. I think sometimes people get stuck on on the idea of. A God when they read certain works and they perceive mm. as being either religious or you know God-centric or whatever I think they they missed the point 
you know, because that's just that that's sure that could be there, but you can always extrapolate something so much larger than that. It is. Um and the one but the that's that's one of those double edged switchblades, right? Because while it's true, what I tend to love, you know, and I'm one of those lit professors who's like, all right, both things are true. Because you know, you get into a literature class and they say you know, students, it's po- poetry is what it means to me. You know, <laughs> you're like, all right, listen, calm down, okay? The poet had an intention here, okay? Like, the writer had an intention. But then it is also true that it will mean something to someone that's maybe not what you intended 100%, but that somehow touched that chord, right? And so, um, I, I mean, I, I think that I'm one of those people, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true too. You know, and it annoys the shit out of everyone, but. So many things can be true at once, I think, and um, and yeah, yeah. And that, and that, you know, there's this sort of free will to to all creative acts. Yes. You know, yes. and yes. that I think that scares most people, and and that's probably why you always have a very um, loyal following for the arts, but you don't have a huge following. It's never mainstream. It's not that kind of following. We're not being, you know talked about on Instagram and no. <laughs> followed around by paparazzis, you know, like that, that's not part of it because, yeah, you know, free will is a, is a really scary thing. It is. And to think of people able to handle it, mm-hmm. you know, my God. Yeah. That's a wonderful point. So I want to, I want to wrap things down and, and talk about um, one last poem. Toil. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, okay, I'll read it. Yeah. Toil. My head against yours and I'm falling asleep. The smell of your shampoo does that. But I can't stop thinking about the lawn and why I can't make grass grow on the dead parts. My heart palpitates. Signs of stress. No wine tonight. Too sleepy. And today was hot and full of work and the yellow heat of a gift of a day to remind us that yes, summer is real. And then I look for a metaphor, some device to explain my tiredness in the face of such a happy event as an 80 degree day, perhaps raking the dead soil or sweeping the neighbor's cigarette butts or avoiding eye contact with that neighbor, the one who called my yard ghetto anonymously in a letter left in my mailbox. And then I realize I missed the hood, the ghetto, the block, whatever. Sure, it was work, life and death work but true, what life is about, true, survival. And what this has to do with the parched state of my lawn, I'm afraid to admit, because it's too easy to work hard against something while telling yourself you're working to achieve it. And honestly, I sleep pretty good at night, but my toil, so far as the green grass of neatly manicured lawns, has been for naught. And that shit, my love, along with wanting the neatly manicured lawn and the friendly approval of neighbors contains the mystery that haunts me. Mm, I love that poem. <laughs> thank, you. thank you for reading it. I mean, I, lo- I love it because it's um, it's so interesting. You know, I- I'm trying to think of another poet, male poet, that writes about uh, family and and you know a suburban life and that sort of thing. Is there like another poet? That you can think of because I can't really think of many. <laughs> you know, um, it's interesting. As one of my mentors uh, in graduate school, 
excuse me, I'm sorry, gave me this, uh, put this book on my reading list by a poet named Lewis Simpson. Mm. Um, I think he was, from, he was from Long Island, and he wrote a lot about his kind of everyday suburban existence, you know. And at the time, I really hated the book. <laughs> just... <laughs> I, you know, I, I said as much to my mentor. I said, look, I just don't, I don't get it. You know, this guy's lame. You know, it's just a whole lot of like boring complaints and stuff. And I never really went back to it. But there's, um, but he was a wonderful critic, this guy, Lewis Simpson. I read, I read his reviews constantly because he was a wonderful critic. But along the way, I read um, this wonderful book. And I wish I could remember uh the person's name, the woman's name who wrote it right now. It's this book on uh, Rilke, Renard Marie Rilke, right? Mm -hmm. And Rodin, Augustus Rodin, Augustin Rodin. It's called You Must Change Your Life, right? And in it, you know, they, they examine Rilke and Rodin and their relationship. And it said, you know, I said, you know, I got to go back to, uh, to Rilke's let, letters to a young poet. It's Rachel Cor Corbett? Rachel Corbett. Yes. Rachel Thank Corbett. you. I was I was just like looking it up, trying to look it up at the same time. But as I get older, it's harder to chew gum and walk at the same time. Um, and, uh, you know, like, Rilke is such a fascinating person. Mm. But one of the things I love from his letters to a young poet, because it caused me to go back, and it's something I just love to reread, is he said, um, if you can't find anything to write about, you know, don't blame poetry, blame yourself. You know, the world is, you know, you just, you're not seeing your world. Yeah. You're not looking at it honestly, right? And like you were saying, right, there's a lot of uh, domestic poems, if you will, or poems about domestic life, suburban life, um, because it became very, I don't know, it's, all of a sudden it became very crystal clear to me as I was going through another experience, just like, all right, the reality of everything around me. And, you know, I wanted to look at that. And especially from my perspective, you know, being a newcomer to this world versus having grown up in the suburbs yeah, and then going off to work on my own and then coming back to the suburbs with my, you know what I mean? Like this is first generation suburban over here. Like, yeah. wait, what is, what is this shit? Um, and so I took, I really, I, I took Rilke's words to heart. Like, you know what I mean? As a kind of mantra code to say, um, you know, what's going on with in my life like i need to see i need to really see you know and this was all of it this is what i see you know yeah. this is what i really see when i look um and this is part of it yeah. you know, this is part of it and i think that maybe that's what simpson was trying to do right what he saw it didn't connect with me uh, other people might like it but i guess it's kind of you know, how this came about so to speak you know um yeah that's if I could say anything about it, that that would be it. Sonia Sanchez has a wonderful book called Does Your House Have Lions? And I think in that book, she she's really writing about she writes about her brother. Right. And she writes about so many things, her family and those experiences um, and the neighborhood and things like that. So I think it's done in different ways. I think one of the things this book does is really give a perspective. Hopefully what I hope it does, it gives a perspective uh, from the point of view of someone who's not used to this maybe suburban living and and what that dissonance might look like, right? Mm -hmm. uh, among other things, I don't know. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it's almost like um, 
You know, it's almost like Mrs. Dalloway when, when you have the opening of that book with the flowers and Mrs. Dalloway's buying flowers. And it's such a like, you know, sort of everyday housewifey <laughs> thing to do. But yeah. Of course, Wolf takes it to this level of like, holy shit, there, there's, you know, World War One <laughs> and yes. tragedy and... You know, and you're like, yes. whoa, what happened to the flowers? But it, but it's so beautifully rendered. And I think you do that. You do that with, with suburban life. We're not just in suburbia anymore. We're in this very personal landscape. And we're, we're seeing um, something that we don't get to see much of. And, and I think being a male poet as well, writing in this space, it, I think you handle it beautifully. You know, it, it's a very compelling collection. And I really Thank recommend you. it. Um, and I posted it today. It's one of our cultural omnivore picks. Hey, <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you so much for that. I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, Patrick Rosal was also a professor at my graduate school, a wonderful, tremendous poet and an inspiration to me in my earlier youth hip hop days. when I was like, you know, looking at following slam poets so closely. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but he would always say to me, you know, that men, because I, you know, you say that, right? That male perspective, but in a personal landscape with some vulnerability, right? right. Um, you know, he said men aren't writing like that, you know, and you know, the, this is your life. What? Why? Why aren't we seeing those, right? Those right. ideas, those poems. Like, where is that? We need that from men, and I, I took that to heart as well. Somehow, I managed to come through. You know, I'm just, I'm just. Oh, it glad. totally does. And, you know, coming from um, our cultural backgrounds, you know, where it is very much about this sort of like um, hyper masculinity. And, you know, these guys are very creative. They're out there. They're, they're doing their thing. They're rapping. They're, you know, expressing themselves through film. And sometimes there's so much male posturing still and not yes. enough of letting us in and seeing what's really ticking there because of course it's something deeper yeah you know but it, it is a very gutsy thing to do and you know it's not just a male thing you know i think it's a human thing it's very hard for people to express themselves that deeply um yeah but um congratulations it's, it's a great collection and thank uh, you i know you're also a publisher now yes that's uh <laughs> that's an interesting hat to wear um <laughs> Because like, I just the business side of it, you just wish you didn't have to deal with it. You know, I think we were we were saying off air. We, yeah. you know, I would love to hire someone to say, okay, you know, take care of the business side of it. Uh, but <laughs> you know, but um, but it's wonderful that we've published some wonderful poets uh, so far. You know, Peter Kern, Darla Jimenez, Lynn McHenry. Uh, coming up are Victor Alcinder and Marina Carrera. Hmm. And then, you know, we have a few other poets in the pipeline down the line. Um, but our next two books will be, you know, by Victor Alcinder. He's an English teacher here in New Jersey, fantastic poet. You can visit our YouTube channel and listen to these folks, get fresh books, our YouTube channel. Um, and listen to these wonderful poets and Marina's collection. They should be both out in the spring. So, you know, little by little, I want to, I want to bring the poetry in the world that I think is missing from the world, you know, yeah, yeah. and, um, and the voices that are, are missing. You know, we have a strong commitment to underrepresented voices, LGBTQ community, women, 
especially and especially you know women over 40 50 mm-hmm. whom the publishing world doesn't necessarily uh run and gravitate towards right right uh there's a wonderful press out there that's um you know quills edge press whose sole focus is female poets over the age of 50 and i wanted to try to 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 tailor to that you know the market where um i'm publishing underrepresented voices i heard an interview with the poet morgan parker recently and she said something that i i totally agreed with which is when we're in school you know and i'm talking about i guess high school and we Mm -hmm. are you know usually this is when we really get to read important poetry which is usually wordsworth or something like that mm-hmm. it's presented in a way that is so unappealing yeah so we we have this horrible sort of like <laughs> introduction <laughs> to poetry that i think people never let go i think after that nobody wants to read it anymore because it's boring or it doesn't connect with you mm-hmm. and yep. and people completely lose sight of it and forget that poetry is not just one one style or something that just happened 200 years ago but it's actually something very alive and present and constantly evolving and changing yes um, Abs- absolutely and um and it's funny because one of one of my good friends she's a high school english teacher and every time i start beating up you know high school english teachers and what are you guys doing with the poetry because the <laughs> kids hate it yeah. when they get to college when they get to english 102 they're like poetry oh come yeah. on yeah. It's pretty um, sad. It is. It's really terrible. But I, you know, I've Common Core and all that shit. I mean, it's better that we that we save that one for a different podcast. It's all political. Yeah. But I think this is when um, smaller publishers and small presses and chapbook publishers are really important because I think they are keeping this alive. And hopefully, yeah. at some point, our educational system is going to catch up with it and things will change. I think we really have to work hard to make that happen, you know, yeah, in our community yeah. by just being out there and putting stuff out there. And anyway, I, I appreciate what you're doing at Get Fresh Books. Um, I appreciate your poetry. Thank you, Roberto, for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, I just want to thank Roberto Carlos Garcia for allowing us to um, spend some time with him and talk to him about his wonderful collection. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Roberto. And if you would like to find out more about Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez, you can uh, check us out on SoundCloud. You can also subscribe to our show at iTunes and at Stitcher. We welcome any review that you can uh, post in those places to let us know what you think of the show. And um, I just want to wish you all a good night, good loving, and flowers.